If you have your Bible, you can take it and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15 will be our text for this morning, the passage that was read to us earlier in the service. If you don't have a Bible with you, there will be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, so feel free to grab that and you'll find Matthew chapter 2 on page 807. Matthew chapter 2, or if you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 807. When you find that, I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes together and have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to work in our hearts as he promises he will through his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to gather here and to sing these songs of praise to you. Thank you that we can proclaim with others the truth that Jesus has been born. Father, I pray that you would help our hearts to be submissive to you, to be receptive to your word, just as we've sung about. Lord, use your word in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 2 is our text. By the way, again, if you're visiting with us, I want to extend to you a very warm welcome. So glad that you're here. If this is your first time, I'd love to be able to connect with you. This is a little bit of an unusual service. Uh, we had our children. I think I counted around 60. Does anybody know how many kids there were out front? Like that takes a lot to get a 60-child a uh, choir in front of everybody without too many breakdowns. I must admit, Pastor Kyle, during that song, uh, I, I was great words. I was focusing, trying to focus on them, but man, there were some pretty cute kids right in front of me. And I I think I, I sensed that the, the singing kind of waned as the cuteness factor started to build up in front of us. But uh, praise the Lord for the children's ministries and those who worked uh, with the kids uh, so hard to practice those songs. That's no small undertaking, as you could imagine, and what a blessing it is to hear them proclaim those truths. You know, church is a great place to be, isn't it? Church is a wonderful place to be because in church we get to do something we don't do all by ourselves, and that is praise God together. Listen to the Word of God together. See these things done together. It's so important for you all to be in church every time. I mean, this is so integral to our walk with the Lord. The Christian life, let's remind ourselves, is not a solo project. It's not something we do all by ourselves. We need each other. We need each other to speak truths into our lives. When I come into these doors to church, I don't come as a guy who has had my life all together, right? I need you, and, and you need the encouragement that others can bring. We're not perfect people. We're broken people. But by the grace of God, those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior are people who are trying to become more Christ-like, and we're on this journey together. So I hope as you come, if you're visiting with us, I hope you don't get the impression, man, these people have it all together, they're, they're all, uh, you know, dressed up and put together, this is, like, you have to have this, some standard of perfection to be here. No, no, that's not at all. Like, we are in this together. Life is hard, but God is good, and we're experiencing His grace and, and, the, and the growth that He gives us, so let's cling to that, and, and especially during this this vacation or this Christmas time when a lot of people are, are focused on, on being with family and, and giving gifts, this can be a really tough time for a lot of people. Have you noticed that? We talk about joy to the world, we talk about peace on earth, but sometimes the Christmas season just highlights the fact that there's some, there's some aches in our hearts. There, there's, some, there's some scars that, that get agitated during this time. And, and man, it could be that deep down inside, you are hurting. 
and you are sorrowing. I mean, we just heard Pastor Ben give the announcement that Roger Clattenburg passed away, and think about his family members at this time. Maybe there's something going on in your family right now that's a deep heartache to you. Let me just encourage you with this. What you need at this time is a word from God. Words of people can give comfort, but there is no comfort that can ultimately minister to your needs. There's no words like the words of God. And the Word of God is what will comfort your heart. The Word of God is what will convict your heart. And the Word of God ultimately is what will build up His church. And that's why if you're new to us, if you're just visiting, or if you're just trying to figure out what what is this all about, that's why we spend so much time of our Sunday service devoted to the Word of God. That's why when I get up in front of everybody, I say, turn in your Bibles, because it's the Word of God that is going to do a work. Nothing else is going to do a work. The Word of man isn't going to do it. I've been reminded of this over and over again, not to mention the theme verse of my ministry that I've come back over and over again with Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28 where Paul says that we preach Christ, warning every man and and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. The way to Christian maturity is through the Word of God. The Word of God works. I was reminded of that one time uh, several years ago at a former ministry when I was uh, preaching to a group of high schoolers. And I had this very uncomfortable experience of of the high schoolers laughing at me while I was preaching. It's one thing when they laugh at you and you told a joke, right? That's cool because they know it's funny. But it's another thing when you weren't trying to be funny and then everyone starts laughing. And I realized what was going on is I had a fly that was buzzing around my head. It would land in my hair and then it would launch off again and do some circles and land in my hair again. And I tried to swat this fly away, and I couldn't get, I couldn't get rid of it. And the, and the laughing continued, and I said, guys, I, I said, I know there's a fly around my head. Let's just, let's just deal with the elephant in the room. But apparently this fly isn't going anywhere, so I'm going to ask you just to please hang on and pay attention during this service. And I continued to preach, and that fly continued to buzz. And I almost just felt like quitting. I'm like, that's it, fly wins, I'm out of here. But I didn't. I kept on going. And I was so discouraged after that sermon, I thought those teens heard nothing that I said because all they were thinking about was that stupid fly that was flying around my head. The next day, I was, I was back at church, and there was a man that I was talking to, and he said, oh, man, I heard about that sermon yesterday. I said, yeah, that's pretty bad. Like, that fly just destroyed my sermon. He said, no, I, I didn't hear anything about the fly. But my son told me that when he, when he came home that day, he said, man, The Lord worked in my heart through His Word. (laughs) You know, isn't it the Word of God that really overcomes distractions like that? The Word of God really is that which builds His church. So let's give our attention to it. Let's fix our hearts and minds on it. Matthew chapter 2 is one of my favorite Christmas stories. And like any good story, you can identify with some of the characters in that story. Sometimes when you read a story that's a really good story, you find yourself thinking, man, the author must know me personally because I could identify with, with that character. And we find that with, with any good story. But unlike just stories that we hear, th- this story is absolutely true. And th- this story begins by identifying, you notice in verse 1 of chapter 2, it talks about the time of, of the story and the place and the people. You see the time there in in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. You see the character Jesus. You see the place, Bethlehem of Judea. You see another character, Herod the king. And you see another character, wise men. And you see the other place, Jerusalem. And so what they're asking is this. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? King of the Jews. 
And that's what we want to focus on in this sermon, Jesus Christ as King. So let me just review for you what we've been focusing on the last two Sundays. We've been on the series, Prophet, Christ as Prophet, Priest, and King. And we learned why do we need to understand this as Christ, Prophet, as Prophet, Priest, and King. Around Christmas time, it's so easy to get distracted by so many things, right? Let's focus on the real reason of Christmas. Jesus Christ is the ultimate anointed one. Why do we need a prophet? Because our view of God is so distorted. We have this God blur. We need a prophet who can tell us like it is. We need a prophet who can perfectly reveal God, and that's Jesus Christ. Why do we need a priest? Because our relationship with God has been distorted by sin. We're at a distance from God. We've separated ourselves from God because of our sins, so we need a priest. Why do we need a king? If you look around the world, you look at your own heart, you realize that our world is deeply disordered, so we need someone who can make it all right. We need a king who could bring joy and peace to this dismal world. To put it this way, we need someone who can give us truth, love, and someone who has power. We need someone who can give us the truth. As the prophet, Jesus Christ tells us the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. We need someone not only who can tell us the truth, but we need someone who can show us love. Jesus Christ, as the priest, shows us so much love that not only was He the priest in offering a sacrifice for our sins, but He also became the sacrifice for our sins. As priest, Christ stands in my place. And finally, we need someone with power. And as king, Jesus has the power to make everything that's messed up about this world right again. We need a Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. And so we focus on this question that the wise men asked this when they came to Jerusalem, where is he that was born king of the Jews? Now let's focus on these wise men. Who are they? Now, some of you may have in your house this, this moment a nice, beautiful little nativity set. Anybody have a, have a set like that in your house? I actually have one. It's, it's made out of plastic little people. And uh, it's, it's something that kids can play with because when you have little kids at home, it's, you don't want to have your nice crystal or porcelain nativity set sitting out at arm's reach. So we have a, a little people one. Now, I, I, don't, I don't want you to be disappointed with your nativity set, but, but as we learn about the wise men or the, the magi in the Bible, it doesn't say that they were necessarily precisely three of them. And actually, the Bible doesn't say that they're kings. We're used to hearing, singing this song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. But all we know about them is that they were, they were these magi, these, these wise men. They probably came from Persia, far in the east, and, and they come on a mission because they have seen a star in the sky. These magi were these cast of, of ancient astrologers, these, these sages, these wise men who would fix their gaze into the heavens, hoping that the stars would reveal supernatural secrets. And wherever they came from, whoever precisely they were, we know this, this time they were right. This time they were right about the star that appeared in the sky. And they came all the way to the west to Jerusalem, and they come asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Those are the characters of the wise men. Now, let's meet Herod. We we see him right away in verse 1, in the days of Herod the king. Now, we know a lot more about Herod than we do about the wise men. I want us to take a little trip to his royal residence. Just, just imagine with me, we're walking through the courtyard, and as we walk through the massive, impressive courtyard of Herod, we see these crystal clear ponds graced with bronze statues, and, and we see these lush uh, trees and, and all the, the vegetation that his gardeners have planted, and we walk through, but we can't enjoy it because the place is swarming with heavily armed guards. 
It said that Herod had a bodyguard staff of 2,000 men, many of whom acted as secret police that would infiltrate the city of Jerusalem to monitor public opinion about Herod. This was how, uh, this is how much he con- was concerned about himself. We go into the throne and we could barely see him because he's so surrounded by his bodyguards, but when we do see Herod, we see a man about 70 years old who is known for his ambition and his determination, but above all, for his insane suspicion of other people. See, as a young man, it took Herod years to earn the title King of the Jews, and now that he had secured his throne, he was going to keep it at all costs. Herod was especially suspicious of the Hasmonean family. He was always afraid that they would supplant the throne and and take the kingship away from him. He was so suspicious, in fact, that that in an act of of political strategy, he married into the Hasmonean family the the beautiful princess Mariamne. And and Mariamne bore him several sons, but he became so suspicious of Mariamne because she was part of the Hasmonean family that he eventually had her killed. And he didn't stop there. He had three of his own sons killed because he was suspicious that they would try to take the kingship from him. Now, does it make a little more sense when you read verse 3? After the wise men, after he's heard word that the wise men are coming into Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. What is Herod's reaction to this little tidbit? Herod was troubled, and not just Herod, but as you could imagine, all Jerusalem with him. This is no small stir. The man who is known for his insane jealousy, the man who would stop at absolutely nothing to guard his throne, was also the man who hears that there's this royal entourage of eastern dignitaries on camels who have made this massive journey across the desert just to see who the newborn king is. And Herod's like, king? What are you talking about? I'm the king of the Jews. And immediately, Herod takes action. Look at what he does. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Now, now these were the most religious men of the time. I wonder, when was the last time Herod assembled the chief priests and, and scribes of the people? Like, Herod, murderer, suspicious, immoral Herod, is suddenly all interested in studying the Bible? I wonder what the, the people thought. Like, why is Herod interested in having a Bible study all of a sudden? He brings them in, and he has one question for them where the Christ was to be born. Because Herod knew enough about the Old Testament that there was a promised anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ who was to be born. He wanted to find out where. And in a hauntingly precise passage, those religious men who knew their old their scriptures so well read this, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod, first of all, summons the, the most religious men at the time to find out where this newborn king was to be born, and then he wanted another piece of information. And from this he needed the Magi. 
So he calls them in. And what does he ask them? Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. What is he trying to find out? He wants not only to know the place where the Christ was to be born, he wants to know the timing. Because presumably, when the star first appeared in the sky was also the time when that newborn king was born. He wanted to know where he was and how old he was. Now, while Herod is stewing in the acid of fear and anger and suspicion and jealousy, the wise men, in verse 9, look at this, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, a star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Look, look at this. Look at their response. And notice how their response so contrasts with the response of Herod. Okay, there's this massive difference. Announcement of a newborn king and one person responds in fear and anger and rejection and suspicion and jealousy. Notice how the wise men respond. You see the difference? You see the difference here? When they saw the star, they what? They re- rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, Matthew here, the, the writer of this, is stretching the limits of language to describe what's going on in the heart. I mean, it, it's like fire to a matchbox just exploding in their hearts with, with joy. I mean, they have found what they have made this incredibly long journey to, to find, and that is the, the promised king. They are rejoicing. Contrast Herod, fear, suspicious, jealousy, wanting to wipe him out versus the wise men who respond in joy. And look what they do. They don't just rejoice exceedingly. They go right into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. And what did they do? What did they do? Worshipped him. Know carefully that worship doesn't just stay in the heart. Worship explodes into the hands and feet. They worshipped him, opening their treasures. They offered him gifts. I mean, this was their way of saying You are our king. You are the one that we have been looking for. You are the one who can give us joy and peace. You are the one that we spent our, our entire journey searching after. They offer him these gifts that are their way of saying, you are our king. Now, why do they do this? What's going on here with this story? I told you earlier that Like any good story, you could identify with one of the characters, but who you identify with depends a great deal on how you respond to Jesus Christ, to the coming King. You see, there are only only two responses to this news that a king has come. Not not just any king, but the king. The one response of the wise men of, of worship and, and giving their, their, their gifts to him, or the response of Herod, rejection, fear, and suspicion. There's only two responses. There's no neutral ground. There's no fence to straddle. You, this morning, are either responding to Christ with rejection or with acceptance, with fear and suspicion, or with joy and worship. And how you respond to Christ the King impacts everything about your life. Whether you will respond to Christ the King like Herod or like the wise man. The wise men. You see, all of us are born into this world as little kings that want to rule our own lives. 
I mean, this is why there are so many problems in in marriages because husbands want to be king of their own domain and it bumps up to the domain of their wife and a wife wants to be king of her domain and where all these, these, our kingdoms are clashing with each other. That's why children struggle to submit to their parents and parents struggle to, to be right, good parents of their children. This is why bosses struggle to be good employers and why employees struggle to relate well to their bosses because we all have our kingdoms that we want to guard and ultimately we want to be king of our own lives instead of letting Letting God be king of our lives instead of letting Christ reign our lives. And to every single one of us comes this earth-shattering, kingdom-shaking news that the king has come. He has come into this world, and he demands the allegiance of every human being. That is the news of Christmas, that Jesus Christ the king has come. Not just a new program, not just a new philosophy, not just a new political system, not just a new way of approaching life, but a person, a king who rules and reigns. It is the one that was prophesied in Isaiah 9. We've read this passage in our services before. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. What is he going to be like? The government shall be on his shoulder, that is, he will bear the weight of rulership, and his name shall be called, get this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The star of this king has risen. The announcement of His coming has broken into the horizon of our darkened world. And how you respond to Him impacts everything about your life. Now, in the time we have left, I introduced you to the characters in this story. Herod, the king, the wise men, and now we want to focus on this third character, the main character, and that is the newborn king, King Jesus. And because this king has existed from eternity past and will continue to exist into eternity present, I want to deal with it in in three ways. We want to look at Jesus Christ, the king, as he has been in the past and the present and as he will be in the future. To put it differently, I want us to deal with, look at this king as he was presented to us in the Old Testament, as he has appeared to us now in the New Testament and in this present age, and as he will be in the future in the coming days. The king in the past, how is he presented in Scripture? In the past, he is presented as the promised Messiah. When did this promise begin? This promise began right after the greatest tragedy in human history, and that is when human beings decided instead of, they were commissioned in in Genesis chapter 1 to be rulers under God's domain, to be Little kings, but in submission to God. This is what is meant in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God says that He created humans in His own image and to have dominion over the rest of the creation. Like, we are meant to rule and reign, but under submission to, to the king, the ultimate king of kings. Yet instead of ruling and reigning in submission to the king, Adam and Eve decided to try to rule and reign out of submission in rebellion against God. And this is what caused the whole cycle of sin and death. Because Adam and Eve rebelled against God, now there is this sequence of sin and death. And this is the whole problem that you see all throughout the Old Testament, sin and death, sin and death. See, see, sin always causes death. What is death? Death is separation, okay? Get this. Death is, is a separating of, when, when a physical body dies, death is the separation of the soul from the body. That's physical death. 
Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from the soul's ultimate source, God Himself. But you see this happening on a day-to-day level too, right? What happens when, when sin gets into a relationship? What happens when, when resentment or, or selfishness or bitterness gets into a relationship between two people? It, it separates, doesn't it? Sin always causes death, separation. What happens when sin gets into your own mind and your own way of thinking? It, it separates your ability to, to reason well with making right decisions. Death causes Sin causes death. Like, sin is like the, the engine and death is like the caboose. Sin is like the, the fire and death is like the smoke. Sin is like the disease and death is like the symptoms. Sin leads to death. Always. That's always how it is. That's why the Bible says this. The wages of sin is what? It's death. Sin leads to death. And so the promised Messiah is the one who has come to conquer sin and death. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. He is the one to stop this death spiral. We see this first whispered in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We see this, this, this hint of this coming promised one, and I will make of you a great nation. I'm sorry, that's not Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God speaking to the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve, and God is making this prophecy that there would come a descendant of the woman who would ultimately stamp out the source of death and sin in the human race. This is the whisper of this prophecy that we find initially in Genesis 3, verse 15. But it gets narrower and more specific as we read about it in Genesis chapter 12. So of all the people in the world, God focuses on one man. Who is that? Abraham. And in this passage, God is speaking to Abraham, and He's saying this, I will make of you a great nation, and I will, this word is important, I will bless you. The, the, the word that describes the sequence of sin and death, sin and death is the curse. And now, God is going to reverse that curse through a blessing, and the blessing is going to come through a man named Abraham. Now, now follow me. I know this is like we're going through biblical history, but this is going to be really important important in understanding the significance of Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. God focuses the promise of that Savior, the the King who will conquer sin and death by focusing on this man, Abraham. Now, this promise goes on to a descendant of Abraham. Now, this is talking about one of Abraham's great-grandsons, Judah. So, It starts out broad, a seed of the woman, narrower through a descendant of Abraham, now even narrower through a descendant of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is referring to this promised Messiah, this this one would come who would defeat sin and death. Now, about a thousand years later, comes another descendant of Judah, a king named David, and God makes to David a promise. This, this, This sequence of promises is getting more more and more specific as we're discovering who it will be that will defeat sin and death. This is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." We find out that it's going to be a son of Abraham. It's going to be a descendant of David. We see this also in a passage that I read earlier, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For unto us a son, a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, 
Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, what would this great king do? This great king would save his people from their great enemies. And that's exactly why the opening words of the book of Matthew reverberate with this triumphant joy. Look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. This is why I wanted to give you this quick overview of the Old Testament's anticipation of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, because if you don't have that, the significance of the words, opening words of Matthew will be lost on you. How does he identify this coming one? He says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David, the son of Abraham. These are the two men to whom God promised, your descendant will be that conqueror, that promised one. But the king came in a way that no one expected. He was to be the king that would defeat sin and death, but within 33 years of his birth, we find him on a cross, dying, betrayed, crying out through torn and blood-stained beard, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems like all the promises of the Old Testament have failed. But there's something that few people understood about our double enemy, sin and death. And that is that the way to defeat death is to defeat sin. And the only way to defeat sin is to live a perfect life. And there's only one who could do that, and that was Jesus Christ. And the only way to transfer, to give that perfect life to others who need it, like you and me, is to die a sacrificial death. And that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus, the promised Messiah, came in a way that no one expected. They expected Him to come as a a triumphant, conquering King, and yet He came as a suffering Savior. In the present, Jesus Christ has come as a suffering Savior. But this should have been no surprise because the prophecies not only told of a king who would conquer sin and death, but the prophecies also told of a Savior who would suffer. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 and 6 says this, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, with His wounds, we are healed. That's the life that He came to live, a life in which He suffered for sinners. He is promised as the Messiah who would conquer sin and death, but He comes as a suffering Savior. Remember I said that sin causes death, and the defeat of sin will be the defeat of death, but so many people get this wrong. So many people think that you could defeat death without defeating sin. People think that you can get rid of death and hang on to our own autonomy. They think that we can defeat death by better education, better political systems, better technology. Last month, many of you may know that a Chinese researcher claimed to have uh, been part of uh, creating the first gene-edited babies. And what he's hoping to do was pass on this, this gene, this rare gene that makes humans uh, immune to HIV. 
I mean, can, can we somehow extend our lives without getting rid of sin? This is, this is the project of so many people. Let's see if we could get rid of death without getting rid of sin. Now, tragically, let, let me ask you this. What if we could do that? What if we could get rid of people dying still living in their sins? I mean, what, what do you call a place in which people live and live and live in rebellion against God? It is no paradise. The Bible's word for it is this, hell. Because there is a place where people will continue to live apart from God. The only, that is called eternal death. The only way to defeat death is to defeat sin. And that's why the promised Savior came first to suffer for sin. That's exactly what Jesus did in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15. You don't need to turn there, I'll read it. It says this, He Himself likewise partook of flesh and blood that through, get this, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. And now this moment that the suffering Savior offers life to anyone who believes in Him. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, sin has been conquered. There is now, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in the, the suffering Savior, who have participated, who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no more condemnation for them. Why? Because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of what? The, the two enemies that Jesus Christ was sent to overcome, the law of sin that leads to death. Those of us who are in Jesus Christ have been set free from that because sin has been conquered in our lives. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the King right now, sin has been conquered ultimately in your life. And although death will have its final claw at you, our physical bodies will die, that has no final claim on us because one day God will raise us and we will live with Him forever. That's the final victory. That's what we look forward to. Jesus Christ came, first of all, to destroy sin so that He could destroy death. And now in the future, He comes not as a suffering Savior. He will come someday as a triumphant King. He came in the past. In the Old Testament, He was anticipated as the promised Messiah. In the present, in the New Testament, He's presented as the suffering Savior. But in the ages to come, He will be the triumphant King. And this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Get this. Remember that Jesus came first to deal with sin by dying for sin, for our sins on the cross. Then comes the end. What's going to happen at the end? When He delivers the kingdom, this is speaking of Christ, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Those rules and those authorities and powers are referring to sinful authority, sinful power, the, the, the death grip of sin. When he's done away with the death grip of sin, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. All his enemies, which is the very last of the enemies that he's going to put under his feet, the very last of the enemy to be destroyed will be death. Death is the final enemy that Jesus Christ will stamp out by His victory over sin. And so what does that mean for us now? What does that mean for you and me who must respond to the claims of this King? He comes as our King, as our suffering Savior, and there is no neutral ground 
There's no fence to straddle. What should our response to Him be today? And to illustrate this, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. Jesus was promised as a coming Messiah to defeat sin and death. And yet when He came to this world, He came to die on the cross to suffer for our sins. And one day He's coming as a triumphant King. And this is illustrated in Revelation chapter 5 when John sees, look at verse 1, in the right hand of Him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And there's this question that's, that's being asked. Who is worthy to unroll this plan of God? Who is worthy to, to open this scroll and reveal God's plan for humanity? Who is worthy to do this? And, and look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John is vexed because the scroll cannot be opened because there's no one worthy to open it. And then one of the elders, this is verse 5, we're in Revelation chapter 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold. Behold means look. So he's inviting John to look. What is he inviting John to look at? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he could open the scroll and and seven seals. Now, John was invited to look because he was said, there is a lion that has conquered. And so John turns and looks. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, he looks, but what does he see? He sees no lion, but he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That is the suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. Men and women, He is promised as the coming lion that will triumph. And yet now we must believe in Him as the suffering, sacrificial lamb that has come to defeat our sin. And one day He will come as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. And what you do with this King makes every difference in the world. Will you submit to Him? This is no fairy tale. This is no fable. This is the truth of God stirring in your heart to submit to Christ as King. All that matters, ultimately, is whether you respond to Him like Herod did, with suspicion, jealousy, fear, or whether you respond to Him like the wise men did, bowing, worshiping. If you have never done that, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your King, as your Savior, as your Lord, that is what you must do. You must cry out to Him and say, God, I have sinned and I believe that You sent Jesus to die for me and I trust in Him as my Savior. God has promised He will save you. And for most of you, I trust, you've already done that at some point in your life. And your need is to, on an ongoing basis, continue to submit to Jesus as your King. 
Is Jesus king of your life? Is he king of your marriage? Is he king of the way you parent your children? You're a student. Is he a king of the way that you do your studies? Is he a king of the way that you relate to your friends? Is he king of the use of your, of your phone, of your laptop? Is he king of the way that you work at your job? Is he king of the way that you relate to other people? Is it obvious that Jesus is the one who's calling the shots in your life? That's what it means to bow before him and worship him and present gifts. He is our king, and he is the only king that could bring us ultimate joy. And that's why we can sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Just in the quietness of this moment, man, Christmas can get so busy, right? I mean, people are running around doing last-minute shopping. This may be the quietest moment you have it all this week. Don't waste it. Don't be agitated about moving on to the next thing. There are so many things to do. There's always time for stuff. There's not always time to respond to Jesus, the King, because one day He will return. I spoke to those of you who may have never trusted in Him. If that describes you, maybe you're thinking, man, that is me right now, and I've pushed him away. I've kind of been like a Herod. I've, I've wanted to guard my own kingdom. I've been suspicious of his claims in my life. If, if that's you, I'm talking to you right now. You, you must cry out to him as your king and as your savior. Maybe you're thinking, man, I need help doing that. I don't know how to. I'm going to be in the lobby right outside those doors at the close of this service. I want you to find me and talk to me. My wife will be there. If you're a lady, you could talk with her. We want to know how you're doing. We want to pray with you if that's you. And for the rest of us, what's that one area in your life that you need to say, Jesus, be king of this. Be king of this. You can trust him. Maybe you feel a little suspicion, maybe a little fear in your own life. You're like, I've trusted in Jesus as my Savior, but I'm afraid to submit this to him. Let me assure you, brother or sister, the hands that hold the scepter are also the ones that bear the scars. You can submit to him. He loves you. Our Father, would you continue to work your word into our hearts as it is received by faith. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.